give you a chance here. get something else out of the way. I think sometimes maybe I build up a reputation where I'm supposed to somewhere along the line say something halfway funny, crude, rude, or sarcastic. So might as well do it and get it out of the way. All right? So uh, I like that, but people have asked me, you know, why did you retire? I was 62 and I retired. And I said, well, I had some men I respected in the ministry, and they told me on occasions, they said, there's no place for sarcasm in the ministry. So I retired. <laughs> so now I can still use it, okay? And uh, I had said this right now. I share it with all of you, but I was in a conversation with Derek out there in the foyer, and I, I had said to him what I'm saying to you in group right now. Retired, you know, I, he says, well, Earl, he says, you're telling me that the reason you retired when you were 62 was because there's no place for sarcasm in ministry. He said, uh, Earl, could you somehow explain that to me? And I said, Derek, listen, you're asking me to explain something to you. I do have a lot of time that I've retired, but I don't have that much time. <laughs> okay. There you go. So if you want to explain something to, uh, to Derek, I mean, set that week aside and have fun. <laughs> How are we doing on the side? I found a little bit pingy here. I don't know if I'm a golf club or I don't know. Is it, okay? Is it sound okay? Yeah. All right, good. Uh, just want to start also by just saying before we even get into this, that if you, as we're going, if you want to ask a question or make a comment or as we read scripture, go through a passage, I would like to get some volunteers right now. I've always said every time I get up here, I like to have somebody else read scripture. So I'm going to need five people. If you're anybody, going to, I need five people who are willing to read. Okay, right here. If uh, when I call upon you, not right now, when I call upon you, if you will read, uh, and your name is Isaiah? Yes. There you go. Uh, the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and I will call upon you soon. Who else has a hand up this morning? Sister, would you read, when I call upon you, Genesis 1-28? A third person. Anybody out there? A third person. Right? Oh, we got right here, both of you. Uh, Doug, we'll have you read Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. That's chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And Heather, if you would read Genesis 3, 6. I need one more person from Tennessee. I need a volunteer out there. <gasps> out there. Carolyn, when we get to you, would you read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. All right. You have a handout. What this is actually doing, uh, just to kind of make this seem a little bit more. Now it's a little bit more technological, Pastor. We're going to go through four Sundays of the God Who. The God who, this we're going to look at, who decides and determines. Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at the God who demands of the dead. Thirdly, the God who delivers the dead. And on the 25th of this month, Lord willing, we will 
talk about the God who disciplines and destroys. And then that last topic on the 25th will not be as long. So I want to go through two addendums. I could have just said add something on, but addendum sounds so sophisticated. You, robot, and uh, the twins, fair and unfair. Hope you'll find that interesting. I know I didn't. Um, Here we go. Here we go on the serious. This is a serious topic. I talked to Pastor about it. Wanted to get some input there to find out about it. First of all, I do want to thank the Lord and you, Pastor, for once again giving me this opportunity to deal with a topic long on my mind and on my heart. It is a topic of controversy. And so, you know, what Paul talked about, he says, I came to you with fear and trembling. There's a little bit of that for me here, but I trust that the Lord will go. I prayed this morning, Lord God, may I share what you would have me to share with these folks. A little bit of controversy, but I never like to just settle for that. Here's a question for us. Are we not, as believers at the local church, to seek unity and travel the same direction together as much as possible? I don't know if you remember, but I heard it. Last week, Pastor, when you were preaching, you said something that struck me. You said that uh, you, you recently stated that you and your ministry, that you have met both arrogant Calvinists and arrogant Arminians. And uh, I appreciate Pastor at different level. I mean, you know, it's, that's just saying something that's true. That is just true. We have these two camps. And, Pastor, you stated to me and also to the congregation that in order to work together as a congregation, does that mean we must always cross every T and dot every I exactly the same to work together? together? And the rhetorical answer to that is no, because we are going to have some differences. Now, we call ourselves fundamentalists because we must agree on the fundamentals, just saying very quickly, uh, the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God, the 66 books. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God come in the flesh. We believe in the virgin birth of Christ. We believe in the substitutionary atonement, that the sacrifice of Christ and his victory over the grave, the next one, the bodily, literal resurrection, is the only way of salvation. And we also believe in the bodily, literal, literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. On these things, we must all believe the same, because they are the foundational, irreducible, fundamental basics of the Christian faith. If we say no to any of these, I would doubt you're saved if you really go against those. So, what I would like us to do in these days ahead, that I would like to not really get into the whole thing, But we have these terms, Calvinism and Arminianism. And I know for a fact, having been around here eight years, there's some of you in here uh, that if, you know, you hear the word Calvin or Calvinist, you spit because it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Okay, you're just really opposed, and you've been taught that way, you believe that way. And I'm here with you. I'm I'm no through and through Calvinist. I don't baptize babies, and I definitely believe that there's a God... Uh, who has a place for Israel in the future. Calvinism does not. And there's also, uh, I've known men that if uh, someone has said they're Arminian, I know one pastor that when somebody else said they were Arminian or Wesleyan in theology, he looked at them and kindly said, 
have you ever read the Bible? Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, there's a battle there both ways. So here's what I want to do, and, I, and I'm being serious now, and I trust you'll give a hearing. These people called Calvinists and Arminians, they began disputing and debating under other names in the 5th century, 1,600 years ago. And listen to me now, I have no purpose, I have no intention of getting into all of that. Now, just in case there's anybody here, and uh, this is a systematic theology here, any night in the winter when it's cold and vicious outside, I go to... It just warms me up. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not going to ask anybody to to embarrass themselves, but there may be someone here who says, what are those words he's saying? You know, uh, Calvinism, uh, Arminianism, what's that? Let me just give you a definition of the different focus, just as very small. Arminianism, for those who are of that camp, is a theological tradition named after a Jacob Arminius that seeks to preserve the free choices of human beings. Get that? That's what, they, that's what they put their focus on. Preserve the free choices of human beings and denies God's providential control over the details of all events. They want to put the focus on human beings and their choices and their responsibility. Now, I heard that. Oops. Just hope you're not a surgeon. Uh, Calvinism a definition, a theological tradition named after the 16th century reformer, Jean Gavin, French, that emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all things, man's inability to do spiritual good before God. So it's, it's the other polar opposite. Arminianism focuses on the choices of human beings, the will of man, what man does in response and reaction to God. Calvinism, the other side. It preserves and promotes the emphasis on the sovereignty, the choices of God in all things, and man is basically unable or unable to do any spiritual good before God. So as you can see from the systematic theology there that these two have been arguing back and forth because they have a far different focus. And I'm not going to get into all of that. And, and everybody says, amen. Uh, but what I want us to do in the week ahead is I do, however, want us to pursue a particular part. Because within Calvinism and within Arminianism as theological systems, there is truth. There is a heart of truth in it. And these two, I want to appreciate that at some point, what we're going to focus on is that they will come and meet in the doctrine of salvation. How God saves and how man responds. So you have both of those, a sovereign God and the will of man. And if anybody is going to be saved, those two must meet. All right? And they do meet. And may I say, even though I use the terms Calvinism and Arminianism, In the end, as Baptists, 
We don't rely on these things because it's Calvinistic or Arminian, but we rely on the truth of the Bible. It's God's word. It's the scriptures. That's our authority. Our authority is not Jacob Arminius. Our authority is not Jan Calvin. But our authority is the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I do want to look at those things. And the other thing I'm hoping for and I'm praying for is that if you're here today and you're diametrically opposed to either these, you know, one extreme or the other, that we might see and come together on how we are saved. Something else I want to read. This is easier to handle, Pastor. It's not nearly as big. This is from the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal, back from an article that was written back in 1996. How many of you were not even born in 1996? Raise your hand. That's pathetic. (laughs) There you go. All right. This is a fundamentalist publication. And here's something I want us to think about, and then we're going to get into this, looking at the clock. It's an article on Calvinism and Arminianism and how it relates to our movement. We are fundamentalists. Listen up. Fundamentalism has never had a united voice on Calvinism Arminianism. While there have been provincial skirmishes on the subject, fundamentalism has never spoken with anything like unanimity on it. No kidding. Occasionally, someone may assert that fundamentalism is too Calvinistic or excessively Arminian. But these complaints often reflect a local brush fire or a fundamentalist turf war of some kind. A Baptist theologian and historian, Robert Delnay, put the matter in proper perspective when he wrote, quoting, And whether we fundamentalists find ourselves along the line between strong Arminianism and strong Calvinism, we have tried to treat each other with Christian grace. And even though somebody must be in error, we have refused to divide over that matter. While individual fundamentalists and specific groups or institutions may rightfully take a definitive uh, position on certain Calvinism Arminian issues, these have not achieved the status of fundamentalist articles of faith. In terms of the movement, they are non-issues. Let me say one more time, and then I'll begin going into this. And that is, I know for a fact, maybe some of you not, you know, pursued it or been listening, but we have people in this congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of this congregation, and some of us are more Arminian and don't have a whole lot of use for Calvinism. Some are more Calvinistic and wouldn't have a whole lot of understanding or belief in Arminianism. And yet here we are together. And I'm just hoping that that's the way it will be. All right? We don't want to go to the extremes. So, uh, with that in mind, behind there, let's go into this portion of the God who decides and determines for today. Now, even that title, the God who decides and determines, that sounds a little Calvinistic, but it's not actually. Both camps, Arminianism and Calvinism, both affirm and agree, listen now, that God is the one who initiates. If there's going to be anything between God and mankind, male, female, it's going to be that God always goes first. I just wanted to make sure, I kind of knew the answer, but I called our pastor. And I said, this is what I'm kind of thinking about doing. Uh, you know, would you agree with me that God goes first? God initiates. And without uh, pastor, as you know, you may remember, you, you quoted 1 John 4, 19. That says, 
We love him. That's true. We love him. Can everybody finish that? We love him because he first loves us. That's right. Anytime there's a meeting between God and man, anytime there's going to be a covenant, anytime there's going to be a work, it will always be that God initiates. I read a book one time and was talking with someone, and I really didn't care the idea that they were talking about these two sides, the will of man and the sovereignty of God. And they were saying, here comes the sovereignty of God, and here comes the will of man. And, and together, you know, you've you got to put them together. And the thing I did not like, I did not like this, because we're not on the same level. It's this. You ever read Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. And my thoughts are way higher than your thoughts ever could ever hope to be. So we want to keep this in perspective. We get in trouble as people if we think we're as smart as God. We don't want to do that. Now, the scriptures are clear in the God who decides and determines that God is a God who decides and determines. I think Isaiah here has Genesis 1, 1 ready for us. So, sir, would you read loudly and clearly Genesis 1, 1? Thank you very much. So the very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. He made a decision. And he created the heaven and the earth. Not only did he decide to create, but he determined what he was going to create. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And so we want to start off with the idea at the beginning that God is the one who decided to create. He decided to create he determined what to create, the universe, all the galaxies, earth, water, land, creatures, birds, the fowl, the creatures of the sea upon the land from blue whales to protozoa, angels, man, male and female, stated all very good and he rested always sacred. All of that affirms, I don't have to go all over the Bible to find this, what the brother just read in the very first two verses there. When I say to you this morning that God decides and determines, you don't have to stretch to believe that, do you? No, not at all. So there you go. So that's established. Now into that perfect creation that God said was very good, we find out that initially there was a rebellion even before Adam and Eve. We don't know a lot about it. But we do know that an angel named Lucifer decided that he should be God. He wanted to replace God. We also believe by inference that one-third of the angels decided to rebel with him. We don't know what the number of that was. It could have been in the millions. Yeah, verily, it could have been in the billions. We do not know. But that's where Lucifer became Satan. That's where the other angels became the demons. So already in this perfect creation that is very good, already there's been a rebellion. And yet the focus is not really totally on that, because when we get to the Creator then, we said He created on the seventh day in His image and in His likeness, Adam 
and Eve. And this creator, here's another D word for you, in the very beginning, some of you heard this before, some of you have not been here before on this, so we're going to re- repeat it, is that from the very get-go, God made demands. God made commands. We are people of unbelievable privilege, but with privilege always comes responsibility. They travel together. So God, from the very beginning, demanded that Adam and Eve obey him, his will to be accomplished. It would be the best for them, because he loved them. It's always the best for us when we do what God commands us to do. When God demands something for us, it's not because he's conceited, it's because he loves us. That's why he always wants us to do exactly what he tells us to do. And also, the ultimate purpose of man, you know, is that Lord will be glorified in everything. Now, whoever has Genesis 1.28, I want you to listen to this idea from the very get-go. There were commands, there were demands. Who's got 128, right here. Okay, thank you. Please read that. Genesis 128, Thank you very much. I read that word verse and I was shocked. I thought we were supposed to play harps and eat Philadelphia cream cheese. Anybody see that commercial? Somebody say, like, what is that? It's an old commercial. Thank you for reading that. Do you understand that when these people were created, now they were created in innocence. But God wasn't just, that, that's not the purpose. He said, you're created, you're innocent, you have no sin, but I want you to be active. There's things I want you to do. And in doing that, what you're doing is you're obeying me. And in obeying me, I will bless you, and I will be glorified. So the idea there of what was read to, you know, to increase as, uh, with population, replenish, subdue, have dominion, all of these things. There was also a command given as to a specific and very crucial prohibition. Who has for us Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17? Doug, go ahead, sir. Okay, have you ever heard about beating a horse, just keep on, keep on, keep on? Now, thank you, Brother Doug, for beating that. The rest of this lesson and into next Sunday, we're going to be beating a horse. And the horse is this, is to really listen to what God said by way of a forewarning and the understanding of the consequence. You'll notice there at the end of verse 17, he says, Here's the prohibition. Eve's not there yet. This is one-on-one with God and Adam. And he says, Adam, I love you, and I want to be very, very clear with you. Listen to what I'm saying. You see this garden? You see the food, see the food that's around here? This makes Kroger look like a poverty-stricken place. Okay? You can eat all you want. You won't gain a pound. Oh, if only I would have been there. Okay. But here's the point. I want you to understand what he said there. Here's the warning. 
thou shalt not eat of it. I prohibit you from doing that. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, here is the consequence. Thou shalt surely die. Now, did he understand all of the consequences, what that would mean? I don't know. He had never, you know, he had been made, I believe, Pastor, I think you'd go along with this, is that before sin, we were a lot smarter. You know, we, we did not have the curse upon us. So I'm thinking like, well, would he have really understood that? I don't want to take a guess at what Adam and Eve, how smart they were, how intelligent, because they had not been cursed or stained with sin yet. Okay? I don't know. The thing is, uh, people say that uh, human beings today, I don't know how much of uh, the brain we use. I don't, I'm not going to go down that road. But I'm just trying to say is, he was to truly understand it, not to do it. Now I think... Heather, do you have Genesis 3, 6? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Exactly, thank you, sister. Exactly, precisely, what God had warned them and, pro- and told them not to do. That's the very thing they did. And none of this man-woman stuff, you know, she ate for it. It doesn't matter. They disobeyed. They transgressed. They defied God. Now, he said there up in verse 17 of chapter 2, that on the day you shall surely die, and then God came to him and said, well, that was kind of extreme when I said, I didn't really mean that. You'll be, no. There would be physical death. We would keep getting older and older. You can Botox yourself into the grave, I suppose. Uh, we're we're going to die someday. But the worst thing than that, not the physical death. They spiritually died. Now, I'm preaching to the choir here, I hope. But they spiritually died. The relationship, gone. The fellowship, gone. Any promises, gone, separated from God. And if you die in that state, God will give to you what you've said. What does God say there in Matthew? We read it through Matthew. God said, depart from ye, ye who practice iniquity. For I say unto you, I never knew you. The worst words, when you get to the the great white throne judgment. We said this before. The worst thing a human being could ever have said to them would be said by God to them, depart from me. I don't know you. And there's no coming back from that. That's forever, and you know that. So now we have, and let me just say it, we've got to move on here. What we leave that verse with in Genesis 3 and 6 that Heather read for us. Because of what took place right then at that moment, you and I, thousands of years later, we were born with a sin nature. We're born separated from God. No relationship, no fellowship. Now let me insert, say here real quickly, I believe if a little infant passes away, the Lord God regenerates the little baby and that baby will go to be with him. But I'm talking about people with will, people with understanding, people who are just rejecting God. 
So let me ask you a question. It's a tragedy. I want an answer from you folks. Made this thing. Looked at all of it. It's very good, God said, and rested on the seventh day. Did God know that Lucifer and the angels would rebel? Did he know that? Yes, he did. Did God know that Adam and Eve would defy him and rebel and eat that fruit? Did he know that? Did God know that the entire created universe would be corrupted by sin? Did he know that? Yes. Well, then that's crazy. If he's all-knowing, yes, sir. Exactly. And that's the other verse. Because the question is, to this point, thank you for bringing that up, if God knew that all his very good sacred creation was going to turn into a very bad pool of sin, then why did he do it? Why would he just like, this isn't going to turn out the way I wanted it anyway, so why even do it? Because who has Genesis 3.6? Genesis 3.15, apologize. Genesis 3.15. There you go. Thank you for that. Because of that verse, Pastor, I know you just pointed out a couple of weeks ago in your teaching, this is the Proto-Evangelium. This is the very first mention of the good news of the gospel. God knew that everything that was going to go wrong would go wrong. But he also knew that everything that had gone wrong where Satan's walking around, you know, thumping his chest saying, yeah, I did that. I messed up the whole thing. <laughs> That's me. God says, listen, the last chapter's not been written, Satan. All you demons, listen. In the end, I win. In the end, I will be glorified. In the end, those who trust in me will receive the victory in Jesus Christ. When we read those first parts of Genesis, that's not all the story. And there's the promise of the greatest story. And we're a part of that today if we know Jesus Christ. So the God who decides and determines is the God who in these first three verses or chapters of Genesis decided and determined, like Derek mentions, that he would plan and provide a perfect savior, a chosen, a chosen anointed seed, a Messiah, a Christ, a Mashiach. And this chosen one, this seed who is God-man come in the flesh, would come and completely defeat and destroy Satan, sin, and death on his cross. You read there in John, right before 1930, you know, about it is finished. It says, seeing that all these things had been accomplished. What had been accomplished? The work that he did on the cross to defeat Satan, sin, and death. So that now, especially with the triumph of the resurrection, everything that goes wrong in Genesis is reversed and renewed in the last chapters of Revelation. Revelation uh, 21 uh, the entire created universe, all the creatures, the animals, the birds, the sea creatures, mankind, male and female, made in God's image and likeness, all restored. I love that verse in Revelation 21 when the Lord God says, I make all things what? I make all things new. I make all things new. 
we were born sinners. And when we repent of our sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we were born sinners separated on our way to hell. We become saints to be with God forever. Makes all things new. If you're here today in Jesus Christ, he's making you new. Work's not done yet. Positionally, you're taken care of. But there's sanctification. You need to be glorified. And then when we're with him, we are totally, completely redeemed. And he's made us brand new. And we'll be with him like that forever and forever and forever. Wow. So, I just want to talk about this here, the idea that uh, what we want to do in these next chapters, and I want to talk about this a little bit if you've got questions or comments. Remember now, I kind of went ahead to the result of what's going to happen, but somewhere in the between time, with people who were not on the earth in 30 AD when the work was done, the resurrection took place, but all in the meantime, for all of that to happen, somehow, some way, and let me put emphasis again, people who are spiritually dead. When Mike Schrock was here, that very shy, quiet evangelist, uh, he was talking about some relatives who were in a casket, and he, he said the obvious. He, he looked at it, he says, all the time, he says, what has anyone ever seen a corpse do? They do nothing. Why? Because they're Yeah. When God says we are spiritually dead, what can we accomplish for him? Nothing. That's right. Now, I'm not going to go down it, but there are some schools of thought that believe and teach that even though God says you're spiritually dead, there's still some kind of a fuzzy-headed notion that lost people can still do things towards salvation for God. And I'm just saying, I just don't know where they get that from. Well, that somehow males and females would need to be returned to being spiritually alive. And like I said, I'll stress this point one more time. It's crucial. It's going to be crucial in this study. How then, as we're doing this study, and how as history unfolded from creation to the establishment of the eternal state at the end of the book of Revelation, what do we find in there as God's truth where the sovereign will of God and his demands and a fallen human race that is spiritually dead, how can these two be reconciled? With man, it's impossible. But what's the rest of that statement? But, well, thank you, with God all things are possible. So that's, you know, if, if, if nothing, if that doesn't happen, and I'll word it another way as we're going into these coming weeks, if God does not do what he must do, if God does not do what only he can do, no one else can do it. If God would ever change his mind, he won't. But if God does not do what he and only he can do and must do, then there's no hope. And if a human being, when brought to this situation, would still rebel and refuse and repudiate the living God and not do what God demands of them, then there's no hope for that person. These two, an absolutely sovereign God and his choosing and our will and our choosing must come together. 
And when it does, what we have for that person is their day of salvation. Now, I just want to ask you folks, I shared this on this, the other Sundays are probably be a little bit more intense, but I just, to, I just wanted to give that foundation. Does anybody have a question or a comment on anything that we looked at today? Love to hear from y'all. Anybody? All right. You had to ruin it, right, Derek? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Derek. Ah, yes. 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 Amen. The news was bad because of the fall, but he gives, as you say, he made sure to give hope to the hopeless and to let them know that things aren't going to, they're bad right now, but it's not going to stay that way. Um, I don't know if it was a song or something, maybe you heard it, I heard it, I don't know, but one time I was down south and it talked about Friday or the day of the crucifixion. And it said, Friday, I, can't, I just can't remember. It said Friday, but it says, but Sunday is coming. Does, that's the song, isn't it? Yes, thank you for that. Yes, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's right. And uh, I thank you for that because I, I, I thought that moved me. And I thought that's right. He's hanging on the cross. He doesn't look like he's in control. He doesn't look like he's the winner. But all the people in all that area, everything, the priests, the guards, everybody like this, you know the fact. Who's in control of that whole situation? The man hanging on the central cross, he's controlling the entire thing. It's his will. Anybody else got a, a final thought? Yes, sir, Pastor. Amen. He wasn't up there by, if you, in a sense, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they weren't looking at each other as like, something's just not right. That wasn't it at all. Everything was, was perfect, great. Now, he chose to do it, but thank you for sharing that, Pastor, obviously. Yeah, he was not obligated or indebted in any way, shape, to do anything. Anybody else with a comment? If not, we're going to 
We're going to take off right here. Pastor, would you send us on our way then, please? We are, and I think we got about 15 and 6 is 21. I'm good at math. About 21 minutes. We're dismissed. Yeah, <laughs>